At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. Jack Smith's words, not mine. Donald Trump was indicted again this week, this time for his scheme to overthrow a Democratic election. And he's already issuing threats that are getting the special counsel's attention. Former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain is standing by with his first public comments about all of it. And he's coming up first. Plus, from protective orders to possible witness intimidation to very questionable defense arguments. I have about 100 questions for Legal Eagles Neil Katiel and Andrew Weissman. And later... He served as an impeachment manager and on the January 6th committee. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me live to discuss his reaction to the charges and what he's watching for next. For the third time in four months, the former president of the United States has been indicted, arrested and arraigned. And let's face it, we've become oddly familiar with how this all goes. There's the release of the indictment itself, helicopters following black SUVs, and of course, the court sketches, all followed by a barrage of deranged posts on True Social. There's a bit of a rinse and repeat feeling that's starting to set in. But this one did feel different because it is different. It felt bigger because it is bigger. The indictment filed by special counsel Jack Smith this week detailed the ways in which an American president engaged in a criminal conspiracy from the Oval Office to subvert the will of the people. Of course, like any criminal defendant, Trump is innocent until proven guilty. There will be a trial and his legal team will mount a defense. But no matter how it ends, this is the one that historians will be talking about 100 years from now. Trump is now facing four criminal counts in this case, including conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy against the right of Americans to vote and have their vote counted. Now, there will be a lot of political analysis and speculation about what this all means and the impact it could have on the horse race in 2024. I'm here to tell you that most of those predictions are little more than wild guesses at this point. And they may bear no resemblance to what we actually see in 15 months when the election rolls around. This is ultimately not about politics, and it should not be talked about only through the political prison, prison because it is not about Joe Biden. It is not about the Republican or the Democratic Party. It is about a coordinated attempt to upend democracy itself by a sitting president. To quote from the indictment, it's about a concerted effort to, quote, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger and erode public faith in the administration of the election. Here's the thing. Donald Trump hasn't learned a single lesson, doesn't seem that way at least. He hasn't changed his behavior at all. And that's probably why the judges at his arraignment explicitly warned him to his face that it is a crime to influence jurors or threaten anyone with information about his case. But just 24 hours after Trump was released on bond, he issued this message in all caps on Truth Social, saying, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. It did not go unnoticed. Just a few hours later, special counsel Jack Smith cited that threatening post in a request for a protective order. Basically, prosecutors are raising concerns that Trump is going to publicly share the evidence that they give to his lawyers and use his platforms, his social media platforms, to intimidate witnesses. 
And that seems like a reasonable concern, unfortunately, especially since Trump posted another threatening message late yesterday attacking former Vice President Mike Pence, who's a witness in the case against him. Of course, this is exactly what we've come to expect from Trump, who will do everything in his power to make this about politics and cast himself as a martyr, as the victim. He wants a public debate about who is for him and who is against him. And he wants us to talk about his poll numbers and whether this indictment will strengthen or weaken his campaign. What he does not want is a discussion of the facts. The truth is, what Trump fears most is the facts, that the facts will prove more stubborn than he is, that he won't be able to spin, cajole, threaten, or otherwise lie his way out of this, that he will lose control. He does not want us to remind you that the people who made this indictment possible are not Joe Biden or even Merrick Garland. They're his own supporters, not just Republicans, but MAGA Republicans, quoted throughout the indictment. And he does not want us to talk about the trove of additional details that Jack Smith may have. So that's exactly what we're going to do over the course of the next hour. Joining me now is Ron Klain, President Biden's former chief of staff and my former boss. It's great to see you. It's great to be back. Thanks, Jen. So I, you have more experience in Washington in every job there is than almost anyone. And I think part of what we need to address here is what's normal and what's not. And I, I wanted to start first with this post because Trump posted, if you go after me, I'm going to go after you. You're familiar with worrying about security threats. How concerned should we be about those type of posts? Well, I think, uh, as you discussed, this is definitely an effort by the former president to try to intimidate witnesses who may testify. And as you noted, the witnesses in this case are not Democrats. They aren't they aren't Trump haters. They're people who are some of his closest advisors, his loyal vice president, Mike Pence, who, uh, you know, is going to likely be a witness in this case. So he's trying to intimidate people who know the truth. He doesn't want them to tell the truth. Is that normal? No, it's not normal. It's possibly also criminal on top of everything else. Now, when you were reading this, because I haven't had a chance to ask you or talk to you about this, you were the incoming chief of staff when this all happened. Um, You were preparing to lead during COVID, during a really hard time in our country. What did you think when you read this? I thought how close it came to succeeding. The indictment is a damning uh, indictment of what Donald Trump tried to do to keep the American people from having their will in the election. I tried to overturn the result of the election. I tried to interfere and obstruct with the lawful process and the orderly transfer of power. I think it's hard to read it and not think how close it came to all working. And that, I think, is the scariest thing of all of all this. The other question I've never asked you about is during the transition, I mean, I was a spokesperson on the transition. You were the incoming chief of staff. I remember being worried the night before January 6th about delay tactics being used on the floor, but not about the level of violence or the level of security threats. And what were you worried about at the time? Same thing. I was worried about an effort just to delay and postpone. Uh, There was talk that Vice President Pence was not going to show up to preside. And I wondered what that all meant, if that turned out to be true. Uh, But I did not think that a mob would break into the Capitol and try and and end the tabulation of votes. And I'll say there were times on January 6th where I was fearful that Donald Trump would not leave the office and that Joe Biden would never be sworn in as president because they would not be able to resume the tabulation of the electoral votes. Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is not mentioned in the indictment. Um, There is speculation he's cooperating. You, of course, don't have any information on that, but you did hold the same job. And what struck me is just the chief of staff has access, so much access to the president, so much information. What kind of information or access do you have as chief of staff to the president for people who are trying to understand this? We have a lot of access, a lot of information, and you're supposed to use it for lawful purposes. And the question here is, there was a conspiracy that developed in the White House, a conspiracy 
to not let the will of the voters be the outcome of the election, a conspiracy to stop the lawful process of the transition of power. And the question is, who was involved in that conspiracy? If you're the White House chief of staff, your job is to find, learn that such a conspiracy is going on and stop it and keep it away from the president. And instead, it appears that the president himself, with the help of his closest aides, promulgated this conspiracy, executed this conspiracy, as I said, nearly succeeded in it. One of the things that was also striking, but even more so if you've worked in a White House, is that Trump basically went around the typical legal advisors, yeah. uh, the acting attorney general, the White House counsel. Uh, Mike Pence described the team of lawyers he went to as a crackpot, law- crackpot lawyers, to quote Mike Pence. How abnormal is that for a president to yeah. go outside of the attorney general, the White House counsel and others? Well, I think it gives crackpots a bad name. Uh, look, I think what happened here was was ridiculous and obviously an effort to break the law. Uh, Bill Barr was Donald Trump's handpicked attorney general. He put him in as attorney general uh, when he forced out uh, attorney general Sessions. And then Bill Barr was the attorney general. Bill Barr told him this had no there was no basis for this. Whatever they had a giant falling out. Barr resigned. Uh, and then uh, he put in an acting attorney general, Donald Trump's own choosing. That person uh, told him, basically, the Justice Department has no role here. Uh, you have to. Uh, have a legal challenge to it. The legal challenge failed because there was no basis for it. And then Trump just ignored the legal advice he was getting from his from his normal legal advisors. The White House counsel, the deputy White House counsel were excluded mm-hmm. from meetings. Trump brought in these these people who were part of his conspiracy to try to overturn the results of the election. And that's what went on inside the White House. There's nothing like this has ever been seen before. No. The, the other thing that struck me, and, and while we certainly don't know, we weren't in there, although we were on the transition, is the vice vice president Pence claims he didn't know about the electors plot. I mean, you've been the chief of staff to a vice yeah. president and to a president. Yeah. I don't buy that, but I don't I'm interested in what your gut instinct was to that. Well, it's hard to know what they did or didn't tell Mike Pence. They clearly were trying to pressure Mike Pence to um, to do something that he had no legal authority to do, which was to stop the counting of the Electoral College and to overturn particular electoral votes. It's something that other no vice president's ever done before because there's no legal basis to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, others also rejected this possibility. Al Gore in 2000 had to preside over the Electoral College tabulation that resulted in him not being elected president. So the vice president having to do this hard and unfortunate task is common. Uh, they were pressuring Pence not to do his legal duty, do something that he didn't have the legal authority to do. What they did or didn't tell him, we just don't know. One of the big debates out there is whether there should be cameras in the courtroom. And of course, there's an argument for that for transparency purposes. You've also were the chief of staff when a president came in and was trying to settle the country. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of cameras in the courtroom? Are you for it? Uh, I would be for it in this case. I, first of all, I generally favor cameras in the courtroom. I do think the, the judicial branch should be more transparent. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I think we have cameras, uh, obviously, in the Congress for its proceedings. And we should have cameras in the courtroom generally. I think specifically here, given the, the, the crimes that are alleged, which is an effort to essentially overthrow the government, the public has a right to see this trial and the public confidence in the outcome of the trial is going to be absolutely critical. I'm going to ask you to put your Senate Judiciary Chairman hat on for a yeah. second, because as I understand it, Chief Justice Roberts would have to decide that cameras could be in the courtroom. Is there anything that you could, the Senate can do or the Judiciary Committee could do to compel that to be the case? I suppose the Congress could pass a law requiring cameras, requiring that all federal judicial proceedings be televised. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I do think the decision will rest with the chief justice. I understand it's I understand the competing considerations here. But I think this is a special case and I think there should be televised access to the case. 
You've known the president for so long, um, and he came in at a, such a difficult moment in history. And part of the impact of Trump questioning the outcome is that an overwhelming majority of Republican voters still to this day don't believe that President Biden was legitimately elected, despite court cases and everything. How do you think, do you think he bears the scars of that? Uh, I don't think he bears the scars of that. Look, uh, you th look at the job that President Biden's done in these two years. He's worked with Republicans. He's worked even with Mitch McConnell very closely to get things done. He's worked with Kevin McCarthy to get the debt limit uh, situation navigated this year. He's passed bipartisan legislation, bipartisan infrastructure bill, bipartisan legislation to help our veterans, bipartisan gun control legislation. So he's been able to work with Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, as much as they've been willing to work with him. Even He's gone the extra mile. And so I think he's done everything he can to be a president for all Americans. I have one more thing. Look at these bills he passed, these bills to make major investments in clean energy and infrastructure. And all the studies show that most of the money in those bills are going to actually Republican states. Ma massive job creation. Massive, some who have taken credit for it, despite voting against some, it. Some have taken credit for they voted against it. The point is, he is a president for all Americans. He's trying to make this country better in every one of the 50 states without regard to politics. And I think that's who Joe Biden is. It's how, what, what he was elected to do. It's what he has been doing as president. Ron Klain, I think people can now see why I could just go talk to you for 10 minutes before a briefing and know all the things I needed to know. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Jen. It. Appreciate it. Coming up, you do not have to be a lawyer, and I'm not, to understand how ridiculous some of the Trump team's legal defenses in this case really are. We're going to go through some of their favorite arguments one by one. Plus, do the Trump allies who are calling this whole thing a political witch hunt know how much of the evidence in this case came from Trump allies? And later, a look back at the work of the January 6th committee and a look ahead to this trial with Congressman Jamie Raskin. We're just getting started. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. And today, and we'll be right back. Okay, for full transparency, like most of you watching, I am not a lawyer. But you don't exactly need to be Atticus Finch to recognize that the arguments by Trump's legal team don't exactly hold up. I mean, there appear to be three they are pretty focused on, repeating over and over. And each of them feels worthy of some scrutiny. Stick with me here. We're going to go through these one by one. Let's start with the First Amendment defense. It has become a favorite for Trump, his lawyers, and all of his allies in Congress. This is an attack on free speech. They're trying to criminalize exercising of the First Amendment. You're entitled to question whether it was honest or not. That's the uniqueness of the First Amendment. That's the uniqueness of America. But you know what? You shouldn't be prosecuted for your thoughts. This is a free speech killing indictment. Killing free speech, that's what it is. The argument, as you just heard, goes something like this. Under the First Amendment, Trump has a right to openly spout his election conspiracy theories. And on one level, they're right. I mean, he's well within his rights to say that he won the election, even though he didn't. 
The special counsel's team actually went out of their way to point that out in the indictment. They also pointed out that Trump had legal avenues to file lawsuits and call for audits and recounts, all of which he did, none of which succeeded, dozens of them. But here's the problem. According to the indictment, Trump and others worked together with the goal of pressuring officials to overturn a free and fair election. That's not actually free speech. That's a conspiracy. So think of this hypothetical, which actually helped me a lot. If John were to say to his accountant, I pay too much in taxes and I wish I didn't have to, even if that's not true, he can say that. That's free speech. But if John were to say to his accountant, I pay too much in taxes and wish I didn't have to, so don't send in what I owe, that's speech, but it's also a crime. Then there's the second piece of Trump's defense. Blame the lawyers, all the lawyers, and he had many of them. As former FBI general counsel and our next guest, Andrew Weissman, put it, the argument is basically, quote, what was he to do? A lawyer told him he could overthrow the government, so he can't be guilty of trying to overthrow the government. That sounds absurd, right? The other problem here is that he was surrounded by lots of lawyers advising him not to pursue these legal avenues. His top law enforcement official, the acting attorney general, told him the Justice Department could not and would not change the outcome of the election. His deputy White House counsel told him, quote, there is no world, there is no option in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th. According to the indictment, Trump purposefully left his White House counsel out of a meeting where he pressured Vice President Mike Pence to reject the Biden electors. You heard how that struck Ron Klain, because the White House counsel had pushed back on Trump's false claims of election fraud. Donald Trump wasn't led astray by his lawyers. He ignored them and instead went lawyer shopping. He went out of his way to find and empower people willing to make the argument that he wanted to make, even when others plainly pointed out how outrageous his plans were. Finally, and perhaps, perhaps the most absurd argument, Trump was simply ignorant. He just didn't know any better that no matter how delusional, he truly believed that there were rampant fraud, there was rampant fraud in the 2020 election and that he actually won. But there are more than a couple cracks in the foundation of that one. Just this, just this week, one of Trump, Donald Trump's lawyers very plainly said that everyone around him knew he lost. There's testimony and there's a number of aides that have said that the president was made aware that he lost the election and yet continued to uh, argue that it, that it was stolen from him. How, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, I think that everybody was made aware that he lost the election, but that doesn't mean that that was the only advice he was given. Hard to square everybody knowing Trump lost and he just not knowing. There are also several documented instances where he admitted he lost. During a national security briefing after the election, he told advisors, we're going to give that to the next guy. Alyssa Farah testified to the January 6th committee that while watching Joe Biden on TV, Trump once blurted, quote, can you believe I lost to this guy? So just to recap, Trump really can't claim free speech here. He can't really blame bad lawyers, all of whom are co-conspirators anyway. And he can't really claim ignorance because that's not exactly believable. So with such a weak legal defense, watch what Trump and his allies will do now. It's a predictable and unfortunately familiar playbook delay, confuse, make a lot of noise. Trump's lawyer is apparently busier running a media blitz rather than handling his client. I mean, just this morning, he threw some of those same defenses at five Sunday morning shows. Trump's defenders are already attacking the judge and lining up to say that it's somehow impossible for the legal system to work correctly in Washington, D.C. They'll use this confusion and noise to delay the trial as long as they can. Because the longer it goes on, the closer he comes to trying to get back into office. 
because the real goal for him is to get elected and shut this case down. Up next, I've got two of our best legal experts, Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal, standing by to try and help make sense of Donald Trump's extremely flawed defense. Plus, why prosecutors are now asking the judge overseeing the case to step in after Trump's threatening posts on social media. We're back after a quick break. We've seen a surprising amount of action this weekend between the special counsel's office, Donald Trump's legal team, and the presiding judge in the election interference case. On Friday, Jack Smith's team filed what's known as a protective order. They're essentially asking the judge to bar Trump from publicly disclosing disclosing some of the evidence gathered during the investigation. That type of request is not uncommon. A protective order was issued in both of the other cases where Trump has been indicted. But what is uncommon is what the special counsel's team had to cite in their filing. This concerning post from Donald Trump, and they write, quote, regarding this case, the defendant has issued multiple posts, either specifically or by implication, including the following, which the defendant posted just hours ago. If the defendant were to begin issuing public posts using details or, for example, grand jury transcripts obtained in discovery here, it could have a harmful, chilling effect on witnesses or adversely affect the fair administration of justice in this case. The judge gave Trump's team until 5 p.m. tomorrow to file a response. Trump's lawyers then made a request for more time, which the judge quickly denied. Clearly, we have a lot to discuss, and luckily, I have my own high-powered, unofficial law firm here to help me work through all of it. Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former FBI General Counsel. The unofficial law firm of Katyal and Weissman, Weissman and Katyal, I'll let you guys work it out, joins me now. So, Andrew, I want to I want to start with you, and I almost wanted to text you this question, then I knew I was going to see you. I mean, the goal of the protective order is to stop Trump from sharing evidence, but what about these social media posts that make—I mean, they may not share evidence, but they are still threatening. So what can the judge actually do? I mean, especially the Mike Pence one, which reads like a clear threat. What can the judge do to stop that? So, Jen, you know, it's worth noting that on Thursday at the arraignment, Donald Trump, under oath, swore that he would not retaliate against or threaten mm-hmm. any potential witness. Um, and then the next day, that post and others with respect to Mike Pence uh, were issued. So what can the judge do? Well, the judge can start by bringing the parties in and giving, you know, a sort of stern lecture. You know, this is you know, an admonition that you have one more chance. The other thing that the judge can do, because remember, Donald Trump is out on bail Uh, Mm -hmm. So he is not free to say anything that anyone else would is there can be restrictions on what he did and what he what he can do. This did happen with Roger Stone in this very same courthouse when he posted a photo of the district judge with crosshairs Mm -hmm. over her shoulder. Um, And that led to severe restrictions on um, what he could post. Just to be clear, any other defendant who did this, who was facing six counts of obstruction of justice, four in D.C., two in Florida, I think would be remanded, meaning would be sent to jail and would have to await trial in jail. So, Neil, one of the things we've been watching this week or has been interesting, even for us non-lawyers, is that the judge, uh, the Trump team asked for a delay to respond to this protective order request, and the judge shot it down very quickly. It all seems very rapid. What have you made of that, and what does that tell us about what we should look ahead to in the weeks ahead. 
So first, Jen, I just wanted to thank you for the way you started this show, talking about how this trial was something that people are going to read about in a hundred years. And the reason for that is not because this trial is, is really because this trial goes to the essence of what our legal system is about. Trump's lawyers on TV today saying this is just a technical violation of the Constitution and stuff like that. Au contraire, this is as serious as it gets. This is about a president, as president, who tried to stop, who tried to launch a coup and stop the counting of an election. So I think this is what, leading to Judge Chutkin and the timing of this case and what she's been doing over the weekend, I think she's signaling, and this is her reputation, she's a no-nonsense judge. She's not going to accept Trump's accept, uh, Trump's decisions to try and delay the trial, which is this kind of standard tactic in case after case. This thing looks like it is heading toward a fast and speedy trial, as it should be, given the gravity of the charges. And when Trump goes and uses social media to do what he's been doing after being warned by the judge, I think that's all the more reason why this trial has to occur quickly. Andrew, you mentioned that we heard a new defense from Donald Trump's lawyer this morning on Meet the Press and, and other networks as well. Let's listen to what he said about Trump's pressure campaign on Mike Pence and talk about it on the other side. President Pence is an attorney. If he at any point said or thought that that Mr. Trump, President Trump, was acting unlawfully or contrary to criminal law, he would have said that. No one ever suggested that. Uh, president Trump was you know, exercising actually, he his has right. said that. And by the way, there's another. He said the president asked him to violate the Constitution. No, never, he said the president asked him to violate the Constitution, no, which is another way of saying he, he asked him to break said, the law. He never said. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. A, a, a technical violation of the Constitution is not a violation of criminal law. I mean, that sounded to me like a new argument or a new one there. But, Andrew, what did you make of that? Well, to, to just go to Neil's point, a, a technical violation of the Constitution, which is overthrowing the democratic process by which we elect a president, that is neither technical nor is it legal. Um, you know, this is, you know, I understand that this is sort of um, defense du jour and they keep on throwing things out to see what might stick with the public. But that one is beyond the pale um, and it's it shouldn't be normalized. It is absolutely absurd um, that, you know, and again, he will have his day in court. He will be able to float all of these, not in the court of public opinion, but before Judge Chutkin, uh, it is clear it will be rejected. Um, but he will have his day in court like every defendant to raise all of these. But this is not a serious argument uh, legally. Neil, you've really been leading the charge on cameras in the courtroom. I mean, you've written about it. You've talked about it before. Most people were talking about it, saying it's absolutely necessary. Do you think we'll get them? I do. And the reason is this is, as you were saying, the most important trial that America's ever had. And this is occurring in our courtrooms that we pay for with our taxpayer dollars. And it is, uh, you know, it is to me unthinkable that the American public can't see this momentous trial. And, you know, that's particularly so because Donald Trump is a master of disinformation and, you know, spewing lies. And if we can't see the trial for ourselves, those that disinformation will persist and increase. And as one of our greatest justices, Louis Brandeis, said, sunlight 
is the best disinfectant. So mm. this trial is be is in the name of the people of the United States. We are, after all, the victims of it, as Andrew just said really poignantly. This was about overthrowing our democracy, our votes. We should all be able to see this trial. The idea that a handful of people from the public will be allowed in, and we can call that a public trial, is just, I mean, to me, unthinkable. Andrew, I know you're not in the business of representing Trump or getting in his mind, but looking at all of these charges, it's hard to imagine that they aren't discussing the possibility of a plea deal or plea agreement. Do you think his lawyers are discussing that with him or what is typically happening at this phase if you're looking at this level of legal threat? Well, a good defense lawyer has to have that conversation with their client to advise them about their legal threat, both um, their arguments on the law and what they think of those, whether they think they'll fly or not, uh, and also factually what they think will happen in the three criminal cases that he's facing currently, uh, perhaps soon to be four. That being said, it is ultimately the client's decision based on that advice. I think that here it is clear that Donald Trump is going to try this in in the in sort of the public uh, because the things that he's been saying so far have, are just not anything that goes to a factual defense or a legal defense in any of these cases. So I just don't see uh, that this is going to be really an issue where we're thinking about this in terms of the trials and more that Donald Trump's thinking, if I can get to the presidency or get an ally into the into the White House, I can at least make the federal cases go away. So we, we are looking ahead to a potential fourth indictment. Neil, I'm going to start with you. Do you think we're going to get a Georgia indictment this week? Are you bracing for that? Is it? If that was to me, uh, I think we will. I mean, I think that's what all the indications are. There are security barriers going up in uh, Fulton County and the like. So I do think we will see a fourth indictment. Andrew, you as well? Or what's your thought? This week? Yeah, you know, it, if it's not this week, it'll be the next week. Everything's been cleared. All the sort of legal issues that could have held this up. We've heard from Fonnie Willis that she said she's ready to go. Um, so it's, it, you know, in this situation, I know she said um, it would be imminent in January, but now it really is imminent and there will be a, a, a fourth set of charges. It's important for people to know the, those charges will stick regardless of who is in the White House because a federal pardon does not affect state charges. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman, thank you both for spending hours explaining all of this to all of us on television. Really appreciate both of your time this afternoon. And coming up, no matter how much Donald Trump tries to spin this indictment as a Democrat. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Democratic witch hunt, he somehow hasn't figured out the call is coming from inside the House and still heads someone who knows the details of what led up to January 6th better than anyone. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me to talk about Jack Smith's case against Trump. We'll be right back. I know this will come as an enormous shock, but Donald Trump and his allies have been spinning his third indictment as a political witch hunt concocted by Democrats. Just take a listen to some of the completely unhinged reaction from the right-wing media ecosystem. From what, from what I see now, they seem totally political. You know what? You shouldn't be prosecuted for your thoughts. And the difference here is, when Hillary Clinton said it, nothing happened to her. This indictment reads like a fever dream written by Adam Schiff and Dan Goldman. The nonsense that came out of his mouth in that press conference is the same stuff we've been hearing. He's like Adam Schiff with a beard. The whole reason why Biden has to arrest his top political opponent is not because President Trump is guilty of any crimes. It's because Biden can't beat Trump. But going through this 45-page indictment, you will not find Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or Adam Schiff named as a source of any information in this case. Instead, it's the testimony of lifelong Republicans, prominent MAGA loyalists, that form the core of the government's case against Donald Trump, like Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, Trump's director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, Trump's cybersecurity chief, Chris Krebs, Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, Trump's attorney general that replaced Bill Barr after the election, Jeffrey Rosen, Trump's acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, and his former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Man, there's sure a lot of Republicans included in this Democratic witch hunt against Donald Trump. And when it comes to stopping Trump's attempts to overthrow our democracy, it was not Democrats, but mostly Republicans who stepped in and actually stopped him. They were doing their jobs, like Rusty Bowers, that the former Arizona House Speaker who refused to go along with Rudy Giuliani's scheme to go around the Arizona state legislature and replace legitimate electors with fake ones. Bowers said, quote, as a conservative Republican, I don't like the results of the presidential election. I voted for President Trump and worked hard to reelect him, but I cannot and will not entertain a suggestion that we violate current law to change the outcome of a certified election. Republicans like Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, pushed back against Trump's request to find votes and his claims about 5,000 dead people voting in Georgia. Raffensperger's response? Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. The actual number were two. Two. Two people that were dead that voted. That's a quote from him. And then there was Michigan House Speaker Lee Chatfield, who said, quote, We've diligently examined these reports of fraud to the best of our ability. I fought hard for President Trump. Nobody wanted him to win more than me. I think he's done an incredible job, but I love our republic, too. So when Trump and his people cry witch hunt and scream about Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Adam Schiff on and on, the awkward thing for Trump is that none of these prominent Democrats are in the indictment. The people responsible for his current legal challenges are Republicans who supported for him, who voted for him and may still believe in his policies. 
they drew the line at his actions. Those are the leaders of the supposed partisan witch hunt against him. Outside of the special counsel's office, nobody knows the ins and outs of the case better than Congressman Jamie Raskin. He joins me when we come back. It's fair to say that in addition to informing and educating the public, the House January 6th committee uncovered a lot of what we saw in this latest indictment of Donald Trump. But there was one big charge that the committee referred to DOJ that Jack Smith ultimately decided not to bring in the latest indictment, a charge for inciting an insurrection. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, who served on the House January 6th committee. Uh, I'm so grateful to be chatting with you this afternoon. I thought it was so interesting what you said, where you said that Jack Smith, you thought it was smart of him not to include an insurrection charge, even though the committee recommended that. So tell me a little bit more about why you think it was so smart. Well, I think it was a a tactical move because that statute um, has rarely been used in, you know, more than a century. I mean, until Donald Trump, we never had uh, anybody, much less a president of the United States, try to incite a violent insurrection and give aid and comfort to insurrectionists, um, as Donald Trump has done. We thought there was overwhelming evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he called them a great hero, said, never forget this day, has continued to praise them, is talking about pardoning all of them, including you know, people who have violently assaulted police officers or pled guilty to um, a seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government. Um, so I, I figured that he probably wanted to avoid a big debate about freedom of speech and whether Trump was just engaged in speech when it came to egging on the insurrectionists. I mean, everything else he's pled, Donald Trump was integrally involved in the action of conspiring to defraud the American public by promoting the counterfeit slates of electors, conspiring to interfere with the federal proceeding on uh, January the 6th, the joint session of Congress to count the electors, and then fundamentally a conspiracy to violate everybody's civil rights by stealing the election away from the legitimate electoral process under the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and substituting instead this counterfeit process that he cooked up with John Eastman and the other people involved in the conspiracy. My bet is that Trump's recent posts aren't a surprise to you. They weren't necessarily a surprise to me either. But even in the days since the arraignment, he's put out a number of threatening tweets. I mean, he tweeted a veiled threat at Mike Pence, who's likely to be a key witness. He's tweeted out threats that could be targeted at any range of people in the Justice Department or in the government. Should there be some sort of gag order imposed here? Or what do you think should be done? Well, the judge definitely has to look very carefully at that and to what extent uh, Trump will be obstructing uh, justice or interfering with honest witness testimony and so on with all of the threats and intimidation, which are uh, obviously par for the course with Donald Trump. But what it shows us, Jen, is that this conspiracy continues. I mean, they are now uh, they're going back to the argument that Trump won the election, that uh, he he did not believe that he lost the election, although there was lots of evidence that we found during the January 6th committee proceedings that he understood it. He was saying to people, you know, can you believe I lost to this guy? Um, 
And there were lots of indications he knew he had lost, including 60 federal and state court decisions rejecting every claim of electoral fraud and corruption. But basically, they've doubled down on it. And they're basically saying Mm. they would do this again. In other words, Donald Trump didn't do anything wrong. So they're giving us a preview of what they might do in 2024 if the 7 million vote margin that Joe Biden beat him by becomes a 10 million vote margin or 12 million, they'll just pretend again that they won the election and engage in the same insurrectionary tactics against our constitutional order. Such an important thing to remember. This isn't over and he's not exactly muted at this point. Uh, you, there are few people who know as much as you do about all the details here. And Mike Pence, well, it's clear he not only cooperated, he gave them his notes. He's spoken about this a little bit publicly. He also said this week that he didn't know anything about the efforts to secure fake electors and only learned about it after the fact, which, to put my cards on the table, I found that hard to buy. But what was your thought when you heard him say that? Well, I'll be interested to see what the evidence shows in court about it. They certainly took great pains to keep the whole thing secret, um, uh, which obviously cuts completely against their freedom of speech argument that they were just Mm. engaged in speech. No, they were acting like conspirators. I mean, the whole electoral college process is meticulously defined in federal and state law in the Electoral Count Act, and then every state has its own procedures for doing it. There is no doubt that they were just counterfeiting the electoral process. And the idea that that's somehow protected by the First Amendment is absurd. There are people in jail today because they counterfeited one vote, one ballot. If you go in and you pretend you're an elector, you're a voter, and you're not that voter, or you fill out a registration form with a phony name or address and you vote that way, you're going to go to prison for years. They tried to do that to the entire election. They tried to counterfeit not one ballot, but the entire election, stealing away the victory that Joe Biden had won 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. So the idea that that's just freedom of speech is preposterous. We only have a minute left, but I did want to ask you, you've, you've lived this, you were in the Capitol, you've done so much work on this. There could be a discussion of a plea deal. We don't know at this point where it will head, but would you be able to stomach a deal that doesn't include prison time? Well, look, again, from the beginning, Jen, I've said all of that is within the province of the prosecutors. I mean, one of the bad habits we've gotten into during the Trump era is uh, politicians second guessing what goes on with prosecutors and trying to micromanage them and second guess the rule of law. I just want to see that justice is done and let's mm-hmm. let the wheels of justice turn as they will. The main thing is that the people understand the truth and that we defend democratic institutions and our electoral process. And if somebody doesn't like the electoral college, great, let's replace the electoral college with the national popular vote. We can do it. But meantime, everybody's got to respect the rules as they are and not try to substitute some phony counterfeit process uh, and leverage the violence in the streets in order to coerce the vice president to follow their will. Congressman Jamie Raskin, when the history books are written, you will definitely get a lot of credit for speaking truth and defending democracy. Thank you so much for being with me this afternoon. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And a reminder that you can listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern.
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.